Hello and welcome to Earth Matters, environmental justice news from Australia and around the world. Produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm Tisha Nahern. The Tasmanian State Government has just axed a nine-year-long nation-leading project monitoring pesticides in waterways. On today's show, we'll hear about the importance of that Tasmanian monitoring program and the alarming effects that pesticide residues have on our health and the environment. But first up, the federal government has set the stage for their latest attempt to silence environmental groups. They've launched a parliamentary inquiry into the Register of Environmental Groups receiving tax deductibility status. Friends of the Earth is one of the organisations that has been singled out by coalition MPs. But Friends of the Earth are hitting back with a campaign appealing for public support. I spoke with Cam Walker and started by asking him where he saw this latest attack as coming from. Anyone who's tracking federal politics will be aware of the really inordinate influence of the Institute of Public Affairs on the federal government. They're a right-wing think tank and they have a, an essentially, an, as I would put it, an anti-environment, anti-action on climate change agenda. They've got also a very negative social agenda and they have long been behind a campaign to have the tax status of advocacy-based green groups revoked. So we really shouldn't be surprised that this has happened. Uh, it's been happening on a number of fronts. There's been attempts by the federal government basically to rein in the ability of green groups to carry out advocacy. Uh, and this current uh, Standing Committee on the Environment Review uh, is really just the latest stage in that campaign. Coalition MPs have been making statements to the effect that, sort of, I guess, making a divide between legitimate environment groups and legitimate sort of activity and illegitimate activity, that which is, uh, you know, political or that which is sort of involves activism and advocacy. What would Foe say about this sort of divide? Why do you think this is a problematic divide to be making? Uh, well, I think it's clear that there is an unprecedented community campaign in Australia against new coal and gas. You look at the Lock the Gate movement, you look at the campaign to stop the new coal developments in the Galilee Basin in Queensland and you know, the divestment campaign that is shifting millions of dollars away from fossil fuel investments and into other things like renewable energy. It's been incredibly successful and the government isn't happy about that and its mates uh, in the corporate world that are involved in fossil fuel development aren't happy about that. And uh, so, of course, what they want to do is is to divide off the so-called advocacy, the so-called political groups, from their tree planting and ecological restoration groups. And we would say very clearly two things. The first thing is there's no one solution to protecting the environment. So planting trees is important, biodiversity repair is important, restoration is important, but so is sustainable lifestyles, but also so is political action. So we'd say all of these things collectively... Um, actually will lead to a sustainable and a healthy natural environment in the long term. And we're also a little bit puzzled that um, the committee uh, or the chair of the committee so far, an MP from New South Wales called Alec Hawke, has tried to draw this distinction between so-called legitimate activity and uh, what might be considered illegitimate activity, that is advocacy. It seems that he's ignoring the findings of a very significant high court case that happened back in 2010. And that was where a group called Aid Watch had lost its tax status because of its political advocacy. It went to the federal court, it ended up in the high court, and that high court ruling confirmed the right of groups that are uh, DGR listed, that are tax 
deductible to engage in political debate and advocacy. So uh, it seems to be not so much about the law as about a political agenda by the federal government. Friends of the Earth has launched the Friends of Foe campaign in response to this uh, most recent inquiry. What are you asking supporters to do? We're we're asking people in the short term to write a submission to the inquiry, uh, and if they uh, if people want to have a look on our website, Friends of Earth Australia, you'll find us through a simple web search. You'll see on the front page there some ideas on how to take action. This inquiry, in its own right, uh, won't uh, trigger the end of environmental advocacy. Obviously, it needs to get to its end. It's got four ALP politicians and six coalition MPs. It's skewed towards the coalition, of course. It will probably recommend in, in the majority report that a number of groups be struck off the register. There are 600 groups on the register and it's been made very clear by some coalition MPs they've got about 100 to 150 groups in their sites and you don't have to think very hard to understand who they are. They're the groups that are most active in environmental advocacy. Uh, Greenpeace, Wilderness Society, Friends of the Earth, the ACF and so on. So it's really important that the community send a strong message to this inquiry and say I do not support this witch hunt. Then beyond that, there's going to be the general pushback. There will continue to be what I can only see as harassment of environmental organisations, continued audits and so on that are really unnecessary. Uh, So people need to engage in the debate. They need to say, we we want protection of the environment as part of a healthy democracy. We don't want to see environmental activism demonised or or the, the source of a witch hunt. And if people aren't a member of a local group, they really should join up, whether it's Friends of the Earth or whether it's your local Conservation Council or Direct Action Group or another national group. Now is the time where people really need to be putting uh, their money out there and supporting these groups because basically, in a very real sense, we're fighting a threat to our current survival. If groups lose their tax status, they lose the large majority of their income and that changes their ability to protect the environment. So it's a time where we really need all hands on deck in terms of people who are concerned about seeing a strong voice for the environment continue uh, beyond this year and into decades to come. Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth. And you can show your support by joining the Friends of Foe campaign. Go to foe.org.au for details. You're listening to Earth Matters, environmental justice stories on the Community Radio Network. It begins with the war-born development of DDT, this diabolical weapon of modern science saved millions of humans but killed billions of insects. Man, with this newly discovered force, has at long last gained the upper hand in our age-old struggle. Industrially produced pesticides have been in mass use since the end of World War II, used to control pests to humans and agriculture. Rachel Carson's book, Silent Spring, brought the effects of pesticides, specifically DDT, to public attention in 1962. And in 1966, the Victorian state government launched a commission of inquiry into the effects of pesticides, which expressed concern about the contamination of waterways. Anthony Amos is a long-time researcher and campaigner on the issue of water quality and pesticides. He collects data buried in newspaper reports and hidden in the bowels of government departments. I spoke with Anthony about the Tasmanian government's pesticide monitoring program and the threats pesticide residues pose to our health and the environment. The monitoring started in about 2005. It was um, probably the most extensive um, pesticide monitoring done in, in Australia. Um, 
that was started largely as a result of um, people in Tasmania concerned about what was coming down uh, their, their catchments. So over the years it was running, there was um, approximately about 80 sampling sites um, and there was about 50 sampling sites that were consistently attested um, a couple of times a year. So um, what they found was that um, the most uh, frequently detected um, uh, herbicide in the waterways is a substance called MCPA, and it's used um, on farms more across Australia to control broadleaf weeds in cereals uh, and, and pasture crops. Um, so I'd imagine that potentially a lot of the dairy uh, industry down there would would be using it. Uh, that was detected about 72 times. And another one that's also used um, in, a, uh, in a similar range of, um, of cropping situations is 2,4-D. That was the next um, uh, most commonly detected herbicide. And um, the third one was a um, herbicide used on vegetable crops called Prometrin. Um, now, what was interesting, what I did was looked at the data from, from, from the nine years, and what was interesting was that most of the detections were uh, occurred uh, between 2012 and 2014. So about 60% of all the detections in waterways in Tasmania were detected in the last couple of years. And then I looked at the 2014 data, and, and 20% of all detections, uh, that was 46 uh, detections uh, had been found up to July 2014 and then the government pulled the rug from under it and sh shut the program down. So just at a time when the, uh, the government was finding the highest number of pesticides in waterways, they decided to pull the pin on, 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 on the project and, 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 sh and shut the project down. Um, I should also state that um, as the program uh, developed, it looked like that they could uh, refine their searches into into more high-risk uh, areas. Uh, so most of the uh, detections that they found after 2012 were in areas that they hadn't studied before. Um, and the big two that came up were in the north of the state. Uh, actually, most of the, um, of, of the problem results occurred in the north of the state. Uh, the Rubicon uh, River and the the Panatana a rivulet near, near Port Sorrel, uh, they, they recorded a, about 30% of all detections over the last couple of years. Um, so what I think is happening down there is that there was probably some pretty strong lobbying going on from uh, agricultural interests. Um, and those two uh, areas that I just mentioned, particularly the Rubicon River, um, they're open for more farming because of uh, a new irrigation scheme being pushed through the um, in northern Tasmania at the moment, uh, uh, where the uh, irrigation scheme's been fed by a new dam called the Meander Dam. So I imagine what's happening down there is that there's been lobbying from a vested farming interests to say, well, look, you're getting all these high results. We don't want to have any, any controversy with any greenies telling us that we're polluting the river. Best thing to do, uh, Mr Hodgman, is to shut this program down. So, and that's exactly what they've done, which is a, it's a real shame because, like I said, it had been leading the charge for um, uh, uh, the last decade in terms of um, widespread monitoring of, of pesticides in waterways uh, throughout Australia. So, um, yeah, it's disappointing.
Uh, Tasmania isn't the only state where concerns have been raised about use of pesticides and the residues making their way into waterways. You've written previously about uh, pesticide use in Victoria. Um, Victoria has extensive irrigation throughout the state for agriculture. Uh, Can you tell us a bit about the history and legacy of pesticide use in Victorian waterways? Uh, Well, uh, you know, it's a a long and complicated story, but um, when I started researching this a few years ago, um, uh, you know, I became clear that... um, the Yarra catchment, where, where most of us source our drinking water from, had some of the most heavily farmed um, land in in, uh, in Victoria. Um, a lot of that is in the water supply for um, people that drink water from, from, from the western and northern suburbs. Uh, anyone who drinks water from Sugarloaf um, is drinking water f- from that water supply. Um, now, in terms of the Yarra, there, there, there was a, um, a, a bit of work done in the um, early 80s that looked at, um, at organochlorines mainly, um, uh, a deldrin and, and, and DDT and the like. Um, so there was a bit of work done then because the Sugarloaf Reservoir was, was only sort of, sort of commissioned in the early 80s, so the water authorities were concerned about what was potentially coming down uh, the Yarra if they were going to build a, a dam that was sourcing water from the Yarra. But, th- but then I found that um, during the 30 years following that, there was basically very little monitoring uh, done at all, which, which is quite a shameful situation. And through FOI processes and the like, I found that in... By 2008, uh, Melbourne Water, uh, who'd been sourcing from from the Yarra from the early 80s, uh, basically were only looking at a range of about seven uh, organochlorines and only one currently used uh, pesticide called 2,4-D. So that was in 2008. And then, I'm not too sure what happened, but there was a bit of political pressure on and there was a, there was a bit of change in the organisation. And then they started the testing for... Uh, a lot more uh, pesticides, and currently they're looking at about about testing for about uh, <coughs> 35 or 40. But uh, part of the problem is that in Australia there's no government body that basically uh, monitors a biocide use. So basically um, what that means is water authorities, for instance, haven't got really um, the best information at hand about what is actually coming down their catchments because they're not, they're not privy to the information of what is being actually, <coughs> actually sprayed in those catchments. So um, Melbourne Water now tests for about 40, um, and also uh, a, a good initiative in Victoria was that um, an organisation called CAPEM was set up uh, at a Melbourne Uni in, um, in about 2009, and they've been doing a lot of research and water uh, monitoring throughout um, areas in Victoria, including um, the Yarra, <coughs> and uh, they published a study about 2012 which showed there was about 48 different pesticides detected in the upper Yarra, which is, I haven't heard of any figures like that anywhere in Australia. That is uh, ex- quite extraordinary, really. And they've also done um, some good work looking at uh, pesticides uh, coming down uh, in stormwater uh, in urban Melbourne, not so much in our water supply, but stuff running off streets and into... Um, into uh, you know uh, our wetlands, and um, you know there's been extensive pollution uh, across Melbourne, particularly with a herbicide called Simazine, which people are using obviously on their driveways. They spray it, and 
then it washes off down into um, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, the gutters and drains and ends up polluting our stormwater. <coughs> In the north of the state, um, I've been particularly concerned about the irrigation areas. Um, uh, uh, the listeners mightn't be aware, but since about the 1890s, uh, northern Victoria has the largest irrigation scheme in Australia. It sources water from the Goulburn River, and that water is then channelled throughout uh, the north of the state. Uh, for, since the 50s, uh, the uh, water authorities have been applying quite high volumes of uh, herbicides, uh, um, different concoctions through the drain and, ch and, and channel networks uh, throughout the north of Victoria, also in the McAllister area in Gippsland and um, a few other areas in the south as well. And, um, yeah, there's been sporadic testing of that over, over, over the decades and there's been quite some alarming um, information, um, particularly in the, you know, in the 1970s, about high, high volumes of pesticides which could be impacting on certain communities in northern Victoria. We're speaking with Anthony Amos from Friends of the Earth about pesticide residues in the waterways and their effects on human health and the environment. It came from laboratories where top scientists from famous universities and from industrial and government organisations collaborated to develop something new and different. They succeeded. To give listeners a, a bit of a mental picture, you uh, state in an article that you wrote about pesticide use in, in Victoria, an example of... Uh, pesticides being poured directly into a waterway from a bridge uh, that was observed by local residents at the time. Yeah, that was, um, that was uh, in the 1970s. Um, that was a place in central Victoria. Yeah, there, there's a highly toxic um, herbicide that's used uh, to, as an aquatic weed control in various weed systems, uh, sorry, uh, channels and weeds across Victoria. It's called acrolin. And, yeah, this particular instance, uh, it was highly explosive. The guys that, that were delivering the, uh, the stuff into the water had to more or less pour it from a, a bridge. And anyway, the fumes um, from the acrylon or whatever else was used at the time uh, basically uh, uh, sort of carried off uh, into the environment and a neighbouring farmer was knocked... He, was, he passed out, basically, through, through exposure... But in, you know, in those days, there, there was a host of um, a host of uh, herbicides used, including 2,4-D. Actually, the Victorian government owned a patent for applying 2,4-D uh, directly to waterways back in the 1950s. So they led the charge globally, really, to um, um, treat these waterways with um, with with these herbicides and pesticides. Uh, some some natural water bodies uh, um, are also sprayed with, uh, with glyphosate and 2,4-D in Victoria. Uh, concern is up near Broken Creek, which supplies um, towns such as Nathalia and Namurka with drinking water. Uh, those waterways are, sp are sprayed uh, quite regularly uh, to control weeds. It's had to be at, at, at the request of farmers who... Um, argue that they don't want the weeds blocking their waterways. In 2005, um, ABC News reported uh, alarmingly high rates of breast cancer among women in the Ovens Valley District in northeastern Victoria. This was due to uh, the legacy of pesticide use 
Um, can you explain to us sort of why we should be concerned about pesticide residues in drinking water? Um, well, I guess it's not only drinking water, it's, it's, it's also what people are exposed to th- through spray drift. I mean, one of the major uh, ways that pesticides end up in waterways is not only through rainfall and runoff, but also spray drift. So uh, there was work done in the, in the cotton country up in New South Wales, and they found that the major delivery route for, um, for what, uh, a, a nasty insecticide called endosulfan was actually through spray drift, and, and the, um, the drift would be like a very fine mist, and you couldn't really see it, but that would um, be depositing um, uh, uh, traces of, 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 of this particular insecticide um, um, all, all the time, effectively. Uh, there's other areas, there's been studies done up in uh, South Australia with spray drift there. There's a, a place called Clare and it's, it's, it sits in a, uh, in a, in a valley and they, they're recording uh, glyphosate in the air there uh, coming in from 100 kilometres away um, because of an inversion layer that, that, the, uh, that the town s- uh, sits under. Uh, and another major problem area is, uh, has been the Coffs Harbour area uh, up, up in New South Wales, particularly with the spraying of bananas. But in, in the Ovens region where the, uh, the high rates of breast cancer were recorded, that was for years a hot spot for the, for the tobacco industry. Um, and uh, there was all sorts of uh, horror, horror, horror show stories of, um, of, of fish kills and, and uh, all sorts of uh, widespread application of, of organochlorines. And that would all wash into the ovens and, and, and King Rivers. And um, one of the towns that, that used to drink that water was a place called Wangaratta. I grew up there as a, for a couple of years as a kid, and um, I was quite alarmed to, to go through the data um, and found that there was um, that there was organochlorines coming through the taps in um, in, in Wangaratta. Um, so the, that was of concern to me. Um, the other issue is, is residues on food. Um, it, this is you know, a particular concern to small children and pregnant women. And the other thing. Uh, for the rest of us is that um, they're not too sure exactly what happens um, in the body after the accumulation of pesticides after years and years and years of of very low exposures. So um, there's a whole host of of health concerns uh, emerging about the cumulative impact and also the very low uh, dose problems associated with, with, with consuming food. So you're looking at air, water and food and, and then you've got the issue of, of the people applying the pesticides um, who are really in the front line and um, the occupational health and safety issues that, uh, that, that, that they're facing. A, a big one on the, at the moment is the, uh, it's been linked to Parkinson's disease, particularly with, the, with a few of the insecticides. Um, and I know there was a recent report done in the, um, in the Shepparton region which uh, they're calling for more uh, work, uh, more um, sort of medical help in terms of uh, looking after Parkinson's people, and, and they think that it's from um, from orchard sprays. And a doctor in near Mildura did a, a survey of, of um, people with Parkinson's and other other, other similar uh, diseases in the Mildura area in the Mali, northern Mali, and, and she's also called for... Um, for more more funding for to um, t- 
to deal with these 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 diseases. You're putting together a pesticide map um, for Friends of the Earth. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, well, what's What's happened is that I've collated bits and pieces of information, but what I realised was that there's no sort of centralised sort of data data base where you can basically see what's happened um, in terms of pollution events, spray drift events, uh, water pollution events in Australia. It's, I mean, you've, you've either got to go through FOI uh, to get sort of sort of bits and pieces. So it, it's, a, it's, it's it's like a, a a jigsaw puzzle with a with a million different pieces, but you might only get one piece at a time. So yeah, what I'm trying to do at the moment is um, is put together a um, a map which uh, will only really give the tip of the iceberg, but nevertheless will provide people with uh, you know uh, historical and current information about um, various problems that have happened across Australia in terms of, of, of pesticide use. So we haven't gone public with it yet, but, but look, I can give the, uh, the listeners the, uh, the web address and, and they can have a look at it. Um, we're still sort of building it at the moment. It's pesticides.australianmap.net. And um, like I said, I'm sort of adding data to it all the time. So um, uh, it's just a, a little project which should be sort of more or less sort of completed in uh, around June but it's yeah it's, it's, it's a time consuming exercise and finding the information is very hard as I said a lot, a lot of this stuff buried in old newspaper reports or um, you know or like I said it's, it's it's buried in the bowels of government departments and you know they're very reluctant to hand any of this information over um, um, you know there are um, events that are recorded by the state government but um, you know, such as spray drift events or, or, or prosecutions or warning notices, but, but that stuff's usually uh, confidential. So the only stuff we're going to get with this map is probably just the tip of the iceberg, but nevertheless we're up to nearly a 1,000 different data uh, points already. And um, it, it, look, it's just a, it's an interesting historical uh, perspective. I've, I've certainly learned a lot from from doing the project and these problems go right back to the 1950s um, and you know there was a there's been all sorts of interesting information out there but it's not linked together so hopefully this is a way that we can learn a bit more about uh, the problems at hand and how we can actually um, learn from the past because unless you understand the past you're, you're doomed to repeat it basically. Anthony Amos from Friends of the Earth. You've been listening to Earth Matters, Australia's weekly environmental justice program for community radio. I'm Tisha Nahern. If you've missed any of today's show, you can find our podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash earthmatters. Earth Matters would like to thank the Community Broadcasting Foundation for their financial support and the Community Radio Network for getting the program out to you. Earth Matters is produced in the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Kulin Nations. You can contact us on 03 9419 8377 or at earthmatters3cr at gmail.com. I hope you can tune in next week for more Earth Matters.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.